The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. This is Squawkbox. Welcome to the program. Let's get into your headlines this Monday morning. Credit Suisse reports an adjusted pre-tax loss of 1.3 billion Swiss francs after the lender posted net outflows of over 60 billion Swiss francs in the first quarter. The Dow breaks a four-week winning streak as investors evaluate the latest string of corporate results with tech earnings the next big test for markets. Alibaba's logistics unit reportedly gears up to be the first of the Chinese tech giant's new Hong Kong listings, with several investment banks expressing interest in underwriting the IPO. And Berlin Airport cancels all departing flights as security workers stage a one-day walkout over an escalating wage dispute. So just as we come to air, we get uh, the first look at these uh, Credit Suisse numbers, and we've given you a couple of headline figures. Just worth reiterating the point here, the outflow, 61.2 billion. These latest outflow numbers on the top of the uh, 100 or so that we saw through the fourth quarter here. So just a reminder of the reasons why ultimately we saw Credit Suisse falling into the hands of UBS in this government-orchestrated takeover. The uh, group declaring a 1.3 billion loss here. Uh, We've got a number of other lines that also reflect the adjustments that are being made with regard to the writing down of the 15 billion Swiss francs of AT1 notes. Um, Give you a few lines. Outflows, which were most acute in the days uh, preceding and following the announcement of the merger, stabilised to much lower levels, but had not yet reversed as of April 24th. And I think that's an important line because uh, even on the back of the announcement of the takeover by UBS, we have continued to see some capital flight from this group. Um, So I could continue to, to, to run through the various specific lines and the detail, but I think we've had the most important Uh, lines already from this organization and um, as we continue to watch the Credit Suisse story this is now a story of a managed takeover and um, I'm going to jump on a plane in about three hours time and head out to Zurich for the UBS numbers tomorrow and arguably it's much more important what we hear from Sergio Amotti tomorrow than what we see in these Credit Suisse numbers today but these Credit Suisse numbers define ultimately the scale of the challenge ahead for UBS because it needs to stabilise the outflows. But stabilise the news flow on credit. Good morning to you both, by the way. Good morning. Lovely to see you. Busy old weekend. It has been. To stabilise the news flow on Credit Suisse uh, and and stabilise and quantify and crystallise what they've actually taken over. Because as we know, there's all kinds of issues um, regarding what the shareholders believe, what the bondholders uh, want to do now going forward in terms of reparation, the 81 shareholders, bondholders there as well. So what they bought for X amount of money uh, and engaged, gave the shareholders a certain amount, albeit very low price compared with any valuation that Credit Suisse has had over the last 10, 20 years, what have you, it, it, they just need to crystallise what they bought because if there are continuing skeletons in the closet and continuing problems and more outflows, mm. then, then there are more liabilities 
that uh, UBS has taken on board as well. So no wonder Ralph Harmers, um, how can I put this delicately, felt that it was a challenge and perhaps didn't want to do it. And you know, we know that there have been certain people in Switzerland who for a long time have said, look, we need one strong bank. We cannot have uh, an ailing situation. But the problem is, has UBS taking over Credit Suisse created a strong Swiss institution or has it created a very vulnerable UBS? And that is a question I don't know if we have the answer to yet. What we're getting today really is just some data from the fly on the wall that was effectively there as the final days and weeks were playing out at Credit Suisse. You know, the height of the SVB story, I think many of us had question marks as to what it was looking like over at Credit Suisse. And we're just seeing now a glimpse of, of that, uh, the amount of outflows. I think for me, it's just the deposit story that uh, effectively $68 billion left the bank. I mean, what we know is that there was a lifeline of 100 billion US dollars that was extended to the UBS Credit Suisse structure. So as we talk about in round numbers, what that looks like and how significant that amount of money was when so much money was leaving the system. Yeah. If that the money went to UBS, that's fine because it's like out of one account yeah. to the other. But if that money's gone elsewhere, what are UBS buying in terms of assets? And there lies an issue. No, I agree with, with that whole premise because you remember when this deal was done, there were a lot of banking analysts who came out very quickly and said, oh, it's the deal of the century. Look, and it yeah. comes with all these government guarantees uh, about making sure that there will be lifelines um, for, for the transaction to run its course here and that there's a backstop for UBS and so on and so forth. But, but I think you had to take a more measured view and say, you know, ultimately, until we saw the quarterly results, we don't know what the fallout has been uh, surrounding the continued nervousness um, uh, about, about this organisation. And as you look across the various divisions here, it is clear that there is concern in all areas. So the um, deposit outflows were 57% of wealth management and Swiss Bank net outs. Uh, net asset outflows in the first quarter of uh, 23. Ultimately, the assets under management then for the group in the in the um, uh, fund management division fell by 41 billion. So the, the the money was flying out of the door here, and had continued and has continued to fly out of the door right until April 24th. Now. Within this, Credit Suisse says we continue to take proactive measures to protect client, fran client franchises. Well, when I talked to Credit Suisse uh, before the UBS um, a a deal was announced, basically those measures consisted of directly approaching all significant clients and trying to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them about how they felt about the news flow and whether they were willing to stay with the organization. Well, this was happening already in the third and the fourth quarter of last year. So clearly it hasn't worked to some extent because the outflow of capital has continued even as those discussions have been taking place. So the reality now is that we've just gone through a whole cycle where the investor deposit holder a client has worked out that diversification is a key strategy and even with the UBS Credit Suisse consolidation that same question will be asked if you've got your money parked in this now joint entity do you have significant diversification and what would that strategy look like if you were say a Swiss investor or an investor typically in Switzerland would you diversify into another Swiss asset manager or bank or, or someone that is parked elsewhere. And there was another story over the weekend. If you think about the fallout 
from the UBS Credit Suisse story. You now have such a big player in this space. Do others need to bulk up to compete against this particular name? And if you think about um, the news flow, ZKB was uh, apparently in takeover talks over the weekend with the likes of GAM Holdings. So again, there are I think there are other stories that are filtering through now because of the UBS Credit Suisse story, but also one around the uh, safety, security and strength of a business in this type of environment. Uh, we've got to move on. UBS uh, publishes its results uh, tomorrow. This is the first set of results since its emergency takeover of Credit Suisse, with executives expected to lay out their strategy for the integration of the stricken lender. The merger has been backed by Swiss authorities and the government has offered a loss guarantee of up to 9 billion Swiss francs, with UBS assuming the first 5 billion of potential losses. We will be live from Zurich tomorrow morning for the UBS results. I will speak with the CEO Sergio Amotti. That interview will be with you at hopefully 8 CET. I cannot wait, genuinely cannot wait to see it. I think it's fascinating to see how just yeah. different Amotti's vision is compared with Harmer's, given everything that's happened. Brilliant. Okay, look, we've got a great big uh, story breaking now um, on Philips as well. The numbers are out as well, but there's an awful lot in the Philips numbers that we need to digest as well. So I'll just go for the numbers. Operating income, a negative 583 million euros as well in the first quarter. Adjusted EBITDA, 359 million versus estimate of 206. So a beat on that level. Adjusted EBITDA margin, 11.3%. But I'll just very briefly go through one or two more flashes because there's a lot going on at this company as well. Uh, we know that Roy Jacobs took over at the tail end of 2022, and it's a very difficult time, in his words, uh, for Philips and their stakeholders. Looking ahead, though, based on our solid performance in the quarter, our order book and ongoing actions to further improve execution, we're confident in our plan for 2023. But there are all kinds of other issues regarding uh, respironics as well, and replacement devices in registered devices as well. So let's get straight to Roy Jacobs, who I'm delighted is joining us. Roy, real pleasure. Uh, to speak to the, the, the newish, not that new now, but CEO of Philips. And it's uh, good to speak to you about these big issues. Look, when you took over, you said there were three priorities. I'll just remind our viewers very quickly. Strengthen uh, patient safety and quality as well. Improve the supply chain reliability uh, and convert your order book to sales and improve um, the, the organisation of the group. Make yourselves more agile and more uh, productive as well. How are you getting on, Roy? We're making a lot of progress. Uh, and as you say, indeed, a lot happened in the quarter, starting from uh, a very good result operationally. We had solid growth with 6% comparable sales growth in the quarter. So we're turning back to growth, which is really exciting. That also supported, therefore, stronger margins and a better cash flow. We're also making good strides on executing on the plan that you laid out so nicely with the three priorities on patient safety, quality, supply chain improvements, and simplifying the organization. And if you look into the first area of patient safety and quality, we actually are now at a 95% remediation mark in terms of having produced the devices to serve the patients that we are having in the recall. We also take a very important step in starting to get to resolution for litigation. In this perspective, we took a provision for the economic loss settlement that we expect to be able to close in the upcoming time. And that's an important step and a good development as we see it. On supply chain, we made very good strides in securing high-risk comp uh, components. And therefore, you saw a faster order conversion into the strong sales growth that we have been presenting. And on the third element of simplifying the organization, we started with a new operating model by the 1st of April. But we're also really making good progress on the reduction plans, where by now we have 
uh, reduced 5,400 roles out of the 10,000, and that's ahead of plan. And therefore, the totality of all these developments make me say that we are looking confidently into the plan um, for 2023. Based upon a strong order book, a solid start of the year, and the progress in the execution of the plan, we are confident that 2023 will be a good year for Philips. Uh, and I hear what you're doing on the operational front, uh, Roy, but we, we, we need to look backwards before we look forwards as well. And look, your shares are trading, as you know better than I do. They've had a rally off their lows, but they're still trading a third of what they were trading at uh, literally two years ago as well. So, so how can you move on regarding the investigations from the DOJ uh, and the ongoing discussions with the FDA regarding uh, Respironics and the replacement devices? How, how can you move on as a company while you've still got this enormous behemoth of a problem which is dominating? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that we have uh, multiple cases that we're working on. But as you see, we are having a plan that we are executing upon, which on one hand focuses on getting the full company back to its performance trajectory and therefore to a progressive value creation step up. And therefore, this important first step of getting to growth in this quarter with solid uh, 6% CHD, improved margins and improved profit is really important for that. And at the same time, in the area of patient safety and quality, indeed making sure that we remediate all the patients, where I said we are now at 95% of the produced devices to remediate them, but also working through these settlements as you call out, and economic loss is a first important step and therefore a good development also in resolving that case. And the combination of continue to work on patient safety and quality, as well as working on our plan to get the company back to its full performance, that will actually make Philips uh, to return to its uh, value creation path. Roy, you, you highlight the um, connected care business in China uh, in the earnings result. I wonder if I could just ask you a bit more about that and also what do you think the prospects are with regard to the Chinese recovery at the moment? Yeah, we are very excited actually to see China coming back into the global market with strong demand uh, and also strong uh, contribution into supply. So as we called out, China was a very strong contributor to this quarter. And if you look to how the developments are shaping up, we expect that to continue and to further evolve through the year. Currently, it's still mainly residing around the professional health side of the business. The consumer side is still more um, uh, depressed, but we expect that in the second half to also come back. So China is back in the global economy as um, a force that we can build upon. And can I ask you about the personal health business? Obviously, um, revenue not as strong as you'd like, but there was a line about anticipating weakening consumer demand. Can you be a bit more granular? What are you actually seeing at the moment? Yeah, we saw, and that's also actually what we um, uh, guided on earlier, that we expected that the volumes are slower in the consumer space based upon the inflationary uh, environment that consumers are operating in currently. Um, and that also actually turned then true. So we saw this uh, minus 6% uh, uh, growth in personal health. We do see it gradually improving throughout the year, but we expected this slow start in addition, we had a specific uh, comparable that we needed to deal with from last year because we take portfolio decisions by exiting out of Russia as a result of the Ukraine-Russia uh, war with our male grooming and our healthcare businesses. It's Karen jumping in. I want to ask you about the restructuring charges, 150 million tabled up in the report card. You know, later last year, around uh, the end of October, you announced 4,000 job cuts, 5% of the workforce. Are you done when it comes to the restructuring on the labor front? 
We are not done, but we are well ahead of plan. So what I laid out with the restructuring plan is indeed we would reduce 10,000 roles over a three-year period. We would take out 3,000 in the year of 2022 that we did. We said we would do 4,000 this year, and of that 4,000, we currently have 2,400 reduced. So we still have 1,600 for this year to go, and then we have uh, the remaining 3,000 which will come in 2024 and five because they're more tied to structural footprint changes. And Roy, can I ask you about M&A? I can see a lot about partnerships at this point, but do you have appetite for M&A at this stage in the cycle? We are very conservative currently with M&A, given that we need to be prudent with cash. Uh, we also believe that actually through partnerships we can uh, achieve a lot, both partnerships with customers where we have actually exciting uh, partnerships that we close in Mexico with, uh, with a great hospital group that is looking for solutions in enterprise informatics, diagnostic imaging and IGT. Uh, but also on the front of partnering with the supply chain partners, as well as looking in how we can better serve uh, the market with uh, innovations that we can bring together with others. So we're having an ecosystem view on how we can serve healthcare, because healthcare is extremely pressured at this point in time. And we need to work together as industry partners to see how we can address the challenges in staff uh, to serve the patients in the best possible way. Roy, just a bigger picture question, I guess, in many ways. We have been privileged to see your journey at Philips over the decades. Um, I've been to Eindhoven myself and seen the transformation on the ground and how all that old manufacturing facility was, uh, was kind of, you know, it changed quite aggressively as well. Do you think you have been left with a company, you've inherited a company in a good position? Or actually, is it a company that actually sold off a lot of assets, focused on certain areas, but just never quite achieved what it promised to achieve in this transformation? So when I uh, took the helm and also kind of the analysis of the status uh, of where we are is that we have our issues to address. Uh, and I've been realistic about that. We need to significantly improve our execution ability. And through that, we will create a lot of value. Yes, we made great strides in getting to a very focused portfolio, and we have leading positions that actually enable us, number one in IGT, number one in monitoring, number one in ultrasound and, uh, in cardiac. So we can really build on strong market leadership positions where together with customers we can excel. But we need to get our execution right. Therefore, the execution of the plan with patient safety and quality, supply chain, and making a very effective organization is so important to extract the maximum value out of that strong portfolio and these strong positions that we have. So that's what I'm razor focused on. That's also what you see in the quarter that we're working on very hard. This is a big change effort and we're working through it. It's a first important step of this year. Uh, we will have many more to take, but it's a very encouraging development that we can start the year this strong. Roy, best of luck and we'll catch up with you next quarter. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Good to hear from you. Roy Jacobs, the uh, CEO of Philips. Still to come on the programme, uh, reports continue over IPO plans for Alibaba's newly split businesses. We'll talk about that when we come back. For more on Credit Suisse's earnings as well as the latest market reaction, don't forget you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts.
There is this phrase that you hear sometimes from central banks. We are data-driven now. We're data-driven now. Well, I find that absolutely nonsensical. You should always be data-driven if you are making policy, whether it be fiscal or monetary or what have you, but especially monetary as well. So we've all all been looking at the data for a very long time, or at least should have been looking at data for a long time. And yet, and yet there is a lot of data at the moment which isn't coming up with the conclusion that many in the market, many in policy land think we will get to, that we are supposed to be getting to, i.e. more recession indicators, less jobs available, more concern about the consumer, more concern about credit tightening, and it's there at the periphery. I'm not ignoring the fact that on the latest jolts, um, some of the excess jobs on offer uh, came off the table, that there is a modest tightening in some areas of credit, although you could argue in other areas of credit, actually we're not seeing any signs of it as well, that the consumer is beginning to draw down on their savings a bit more, that retail sales are becoming more checkered on a monthly basis. And yet, and yet the market stalwartly at the moment is not taking those signs and saying, right, we are slowing down. That means X for policy. And then it means X for the US economy. Because if you look at these moves on the US markets for the week as well, you can see very, very modest moves for an economy that has so much going on. There's so much uh, store is being made uh, on the next rate decision and whether there is a peak coming and whether there's a pivot coming, uh, as so many of our commentators tell us in, in the last quarter. I just can't help think, thinking that so many of those group think commentators who are telling us that there will be a pivot and we'll be seeing cutting rates in the third or fourth quarter. I can't help thinking they're telling me that they're talking their book, really, implicitly, because the market wants to see lower rates so that it can buy this market again. But what happens if the data just carries on roughly as it is and then actually they don't see a strong signal to the Fed that they should be cutting rates as well? What does that do to your discounted cash flow models? What does it do to your positioning in growth stocks? What does it do to your overall thoughts about where this market go, where treasuries go as well? Because the market has many times in the last year or so tried to face down the Fed and so far, so far, failed to face down the Fed. I will mention though, thank you very much, Steve, moving on to the treasuries, uh, 4.18 on the two-year, 10-year looking at 3.56. Data, data, data. So it would be remiss of me not to say, today, Dallas Fed manufacturing, tomorrow, Philly Fed non-manufacturing, consumer board conference data, that is very interesting, mortgage applications, advanced economic indicators, durable goods on Wednesday, oh, and then the mere matter of a first look at the Q1 GDP on Thursday. That will be absolutely fascinating, seen somewhere in the region of 2% growth. Uh, growth year on year as well. But there's a price index component in there. Friday, employment cost index and University of Michigan consumer sentiment. So lots, lots going on. Should we have a look at the dollar and where the dollar crosses are going as well? Again, not a huge movement last week. In fact, if anything, the dollar put on uh, a small amount of gains last week, 0.2 of 1%, which is very interesting for the vast number of you out there who have told me that the dollar is on a one-way track lower as well. Again, all very convenient. The pound, 124.26, euro dollar trading just a tad below 110. Would you like to look at commodities? Because I think this is fascinating. I spent a lot of time looking at it last week, working out different levels. Look at this. If you were OPEC on the 2nd of April and you had a cut that no one expected, Boom! What would you have expected? Well, I'll tell you what you expected. You expected that the, that the analysts who pumped up their prices in their, their estimates for the end of Q2, Q3, Q4 for this year as well, you'd expect the price to go up to those kind of levels, wouldn't you? Mm, that's not quite what happened. Look at that. That is under a buck higher, under one dollar higher 
than actually it was trading on the day before the announcement. 79.77 was my measure. You may have a different measure on that. So really, that is not the bang for the buck that OPEC Plus would have expected from this emergency cut, this surprise cut. They would have expected, I think, somewhere near a 90 handle, possibly even higher, because that's what the analysts told me we're going to do on the market now. But I keep seeing indicators that actually demand for product isn't quite as robust as they would have hoped it would have been, especially given the fact we've got a China reopening. Talking of China, should we have a look at the Asian indices? Let's do that. Nikkei's flat, Hang Seng down 1.2%, flat on the ASX 200, Shanghai Composite down 0.3 of 1%. Alibaba's logistics arm, uh, uh, China uh, Network Technology, is uh, reportedly preparing to be the first of the firm's six business units to IPO, according to Chaixin, which says the business is in conversations with banks about a possible Hong Kong listing. The report comes after Bloomberg uh, stated the same almost a month ago, saying the offering could fetch as much as $20 billion. Alibaba's grocery store unit, uh, Freshippo, is also reportedly laying the groundwork for, for an offering, but on a longer time horizon. Emily has the latest. Alibaba's logistics arm could be the first of the six units to go public. According to reports, Tainiao Network Technology has started preparations for a Hong Kong listing, with several investment banks expressing interest in underwriting the IPO. This comes after the historic overhaul of Alibaba's business announced at the end of March, which would see the group split into six units and allow each unit to raise capital and sell stock. Responding to inquiries, Alibaba said there were no clear IPO plans or timetable. According to analysts, Tainiao has the most mature conditions for a listing. Meanwhile, Fresh Hippo, Alibaba's grocery chain, has also reportedly started preparations for a Hong Kong listing. And these share sales would be the first for Alibaba units to be listed since the Ant Group IPO was cancelled at the last minute back in November 2020. I'm Emily Tan in Hong Kong. Back to you. Pick up on this, uh, Kainal, not a, a company we've really spoken about uh, in Europe for a, a long time, a, a company that I guess the Chinese know, but effectively this is a logistics arm. It ships about 4 million parcels a day from China, but mainly product that's sold from merchants across the Alibaba website. What it's been trying to do in recent years and with this IPO is to get into international markets. So effectively having some big name clients want to ship product from China overseas directly so we're talking very small numbers here in terms of the cost what five dollars a delivery for an international parcel that will take 10 days to arrive two dollars for a 20-day delivery and you think about the competition here would be some of the natural postal services but this is expensive business because when it comes to the international network that is something they have to build themselves or partner with some of the, the large existing players versus domestically in china where they have this asset light model which means that they just tap into uh, a network of couriers using an it system so they don't actually employ any drivers so quite different when you think about building warehouses a building uh, the type of infrastructure and hiring personnel in say the european markets and across southeast asia to get these parcels to their end destination so it's an expensive of business, uh, which is why they seem to be tapping markets. And it does make you, you know, go back to the original point, why um, divest these businesses from Alibaba? Was the parent tapped out when it came to the amount of funding to try and uh, fund this type of expansion? Was there not the appetite for investors because uh, this is a platform that doesn't fall within uh, one of the preferred areas for the Chinese government now? You know, what is the rationale? Is that the reason why? It's a business that in some ways would be a little bit like an Amazon. The international investor can understand that and see the upside? I mean, my sense is this, is this has been a purely political story. 
that Alibaba is too big for its boots, Jack Ma got too big for its boots, and the Chinese government has to take it down a peg or two. And ultimately, the breaking up of this business into six separate business units is about uh, reducing the power of each individual um, stream. My, my point about this, I guess, because we know so much about this story already because it's been played out in the public gaze and we've seen SoftBank walk away from Alibaba now with most of its significant stake and we've, we've seen the so-called excitement around the AI um, which is coming from Alibaba, but it's AI with Chinese controls and characteristics and security features. So it's not exactly the freewheeling, ask any question you like and it's going to learn and it's going to do great things. Uh, my, other my other bigger problem with this is, is just the timing. You know, take, take a look at the Hang Seng Index on a one-year view, and the Hong Kong market is the one that is primarily going to be the, the place where these listings take place because they don't want to go to New York because this ongoing disagreement with the United States. So they certainly don't want the business units to go there because of the audit and the concern about what they may reveal. So they're talking about, you know, a bunch of Hong Kong listings in a market that's negative on a 12-month story running into the slowdown of the global economy. Best of luck. Can I just make one final point around logistics? I mean, you think about what we know around Chinese delivery. Uh, in China, it feels as though you can get pretty much any product very, very quickly to your door in the space of a very short amount of time intraday. But the other side of the complaint is when you've ever had anything shipped from China, very difficult to then send the product back if you don't like it, you're not happy with it. So is there anything to learn from China's logistics at this point? And what does this company bring to the table? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.